for new heavens and a new earth as dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Our passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 18 and 19 today and uh, verse 20 if we get there. But at least verses 18 and 19. Last week we dealt with verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. And we ran out of time before we could look at all the profit and unprofitable type verses that we have in the New Testament. Um, we might hit those briefly here today and then, and then advance because we've got a lot of material to deal with in verses 18 and 19 and it centers on prayer. So let's start with prayer. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's go to Him in prayer and ask for His blessing on our time. Shall we pray? Father, it is a blessing to assemble together, to be called by Your grace, and to be called in a family. Father, I thank You for this church family, and I Thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together, the freedom that we have in our nation to assemble together. Father, we pray for the circumstances of the coronavirus that's sweeping through, that, Father, we still have um, a, a significant portion of our congregation that remains at home and watches the stream. But, Father, uh, in your will, a day is coming that we can all be face-to-face once again, and maybe maybe the trumpet will sound and we'll be face-to-face uh, with the Lord in the air. So, Uh, In all these things, we just thank you for being faithful, and we call upon that faithfulness for our study today. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Hebrews chapter 13. And if I have the correct slide ready to go. Oh, we're past that already. Let's get past that. We did that already. Verse 15, verse 16. Verse 17, here's where we were last week. Obedience and subjection, different things. People get confused over this because they read a passage like be in subjection and they misread it. They think it's obedience, but it's not. It's subjection. Obedience and subjection are different things. And we can prove that they're different things because of verses like this one that include both of them. When it says obey your leaders and submit to them, That's the obedience and the subjection, totally different verbs. Sometimes they're combined and sometimes they're not. Sometimes, for example, uh, wives are to be in subjection to their husbands, but children are to obey their parents. And so there are significant differences between them. In the church context, though, we have both. We have both obedience and subjection. Why? Not because they're special and you can't help yourself or they deserve it or any other goofy thing like that. It's because their work benefits you. God has provided them for the shepherding of your soul. It says they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That they are faithful in their duties because they're accountable to Jesus Christ for everything that they do. The good, the great, and the chief shepherd uh, rewards them for their faithfulness in shepherding. So those who will give an account, and they are very accountable, and if they're mindful of this, they're very fearful uh, before the Lord in this duty. It then says, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And uh, just like you see sometimes in the movies or some corny show or something and the the villain says, you know, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. Or maybe it's uh, a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. And they they give the guy the choice. Do you want to do this the easy way or the hard way? And and, uh, anyway, it's it's amusing depending on the context and what what they're dealing with. But really, Scripture is given the same kind of language here. Uh, The shepherding will be done. If the man's a faithful shepherd, he's going to shepherd whether it's joyful or not. That if it's, uh, it's, uh, as it says, let them do this with joy and not with grief. Now the faithful man will shepherd even with the grief, and as he does so, he gets the reward. In fact, he gets a double reward because he's going to get his shepherding reward, and then he's going to obtain the reward you're throwing away because this would be unprofitable for you, we're told. The language of profitability is the language of eternal reward. And so after we were done looking at the obedience and subjection contexts for all these things, there were several, 
We obey God, we're subject to God. We obey church leaders, we're subject to church leaders. We don't obey one another, but we are in subjection to one another, to fellow church members in the various ministry capacities. Husbands, wives are to be in subjection to their husbands as unto the Lord. It's not absolute obedience. Uh, Parents, though, children are to obey their parents. It's an obedience verb there. I should have color-coded these for the ones that are obedience only, subjection only, or both. Obey and be in subjection. Of course, slaves to their masters and government. We are to be in subjection to the governing authorities. We don't obey, but we are in subjection. And we obey as we can, when we can. We render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but we also render unto God the things that are God's. And then if Caesar puts us in a conflict where we can't obey both at the same time, then we have to obey God rather than man. And we recognize even in that disobedience, though, we still stay in subjection which means we could find ourselves in jail. We could find ourselves with other secular uh, consequences for the disobedience uh, as we remain in subjection to the government that is over us. Anyway, Romans 13, 1 through 7, Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. And there is a whole series of messages that we could deliver there related to submission and subjection to governing authorities. And in particular, in the Fourth uh, of July weekend, it's useful to ask the question, well, uh, how about George Washington and John Adams and those guys? Weren't they in rebellion against King George? And uh, that's, that must be addressed. That's an excellent question. They were in subjection. George Washington was not in rebellion against King George. George Washington was in subjection to the colony of Virginia. And the colony of Virginia determined that they were no longer connected to Great Britain, but they were going to be connected to the other thirteen or to the other twelve colonies, that they were going to change their connection. So George Washington was not in rebellion against against uh, King George, and neither was John Adams. And John Adams was loyal. He was in subjection to the to the colony of Massachusetts. Anyway, there's a whole message there and different things connected to that, but it does address the issue of subjection and how we are in subjection to uh, national, state, and local governing authorities that have been placed over us. They are there because God put them there. Thank God that He did. I would not want to be living in some lawless banditry land of of, uh, Somalia or somewhere where it's just warlords with guns that tell you what to do uh, uh, without any kind of rule of law. We have the government God has blessed us with, and even when we disagree with it, it is still God's blessing in our life. And so that's my 4th of July message there. All right. Pastors are accountable to God for their sleepless watch that they maintain on behalf of the souls allotted to their charge. And when it does say they keep watch over your souls, the, the, Hebrew, the Greek verb there speaks of a, a sleepless watch. And that's uh, many of the expressions for guard duty uh, speak about lack of sleep. And uh, Paul testified to that, that he's been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights. And this is the, uh, the uh, privilege and blessing of, uh, of ministry. And that sleepless watch on behalf of souls as those who will give an account because these souls have been allotted to their charge. 1 Peter 5, 4 that addresses this as well as 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. Then it says, let them do this with joy and not with grief for this... The grief circumstance would be unprofitable for you. Joy or grief is your option. In season or out of season is my option. That's my mandate. All right? So whether it's a joy or a grief is up to the sheep and what kind of sheep he's going to be for his shepherd. Uh, When it says, let them do this with joy and not with grief, it's the church member that's the determining factor of of that imperative. And then, uh, of course, 2 Timothy 4.2, the pastor is to be ready in season and out of season to preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come that they will not tolerate sound doctrine. They want their ears tickled. So joy or grief, that's the easy way or the hard way, and it's up to you. It's up to what kind of sheep you want to be in the, uh, in the process of being shepherded 
in a, in a joyful way or a grie- grievous way. And uh, when you see that this is connected with rewardability or unrewardability, then it becomes a no-brainer. When you realize, ooh, doing it with grief is unprofitable for me? Oh, okay. Well, I can fix that. This is the easiest award to get. This is the uh, Made My Pastor's Job a Joy Award, and it's very profitable as opposed to the Made My Pastor's Job a Grief uh, Reward Forfeiture. That is, uh, that's the other side of the coin, and that's the side you don't want in, uh, in that regard. And in fact, we didn't really look at all these verses. Uh, I did put them on the slide, and you can look at them on your own, I think. But uh, in all of these cases, when the Bible talks about profitability, the verses practically preach themselves. They're, they're self-explanatory. They contain the self-evident realities uh, as far as things being not lawful, not profitable, things that edify are always profitable, and, uh, and the different patterns there. I think I'll just real quickly run through. Let me start with Philippians and take the rest of that list because we, uh, we ran out of time last week and didn't I remember we got through 1 Corinthians and particularly chapter 14, chapter 15. That's the resurrection chapter where Paul says, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Let me tell you, that, 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 there's another verse that just preaches itself, right? You can read that and say, oh, you know what? Anything I do, if it's human motives that's causing me to do it, from playing piano or teaching a Bible class or changing diapers in the nursery or dumping the trash or whatever, if you're doing a service as unto the Lord, it better not be with human motives. It needs to be with divine motives. It needs to be with your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ for the spiritual priesthood that you've been given. Not just with human motives, that's human viewpoint. And even fighting with wild beasts, even your martyrdom, it could be a waste of time. How many martyrs are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and then sadly they won't be rewarded for their martyrdom because they were there for the wrong reasons. They were boastful about it at the time. Paul was thrown to the wild beasts. He was thrown to the lions. And he barely talks about it. This is the one time he mentions it in 2 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, talking about that episode. And you would think if it was a big deal he would have mentioned it more than once. But this is the only time he brought it up. If I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? The, the human motives make it all worthless. Philippians 4.17, talking about the money that was sent. And anytime you know, a, a marvelous donation is received by a ministry, it's always appreciated. But what's appreciated more than the dollar value is the spiritual profit that is, that is recorded in heaven. Paul tells the Philippians, he was thankful that they sent a gift from Epaphras, but he was, or Epaphroditus, that he conveyed that gift to their loca- to his location. But he says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. See, in, in God's heavenly record book, the, the profitability comes, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that you, when in supporting the ministry of the Word of God, you're actually accumulating a heavenly profit, even though on earth it may appear that you're suffering a, an outflow in your, in your cash. Right, the, it's a cash flow out uh, output. Uh, an earthly accountant would mark it red in the expenditures column, but God marks it as a profit in His heavenly ledger, because this is what it's about. I seek for the profit which increases to your account. First Timothy four eight. Bodily discipline is only of little profit. So all the fitness and all the exercise, you know, physically fit people still die. That's uh, what happens. It, it, it does have a value, but the value that it has is limited to this life. And, uh, you know, when the undertaker is, is embalming the physically fit specimen that he's embalming, it's still a cadaver, a dead thing that's going into the ground. So bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life, also for the life to come. And so... It's, again, all of these prophet passages pretty much preach themselves uh, in uh, conveying distinctions between the temporal and the eternal, the physical with the spiritual. And uh, the godliness benefit, that lasts forever. 2 Timothy 
All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And so here's the thing, in terms of ministry pursuits, what is useful, what is profitable, what, what should a ministry be involved with? And a church that emphasizes something other than the Scriptures is actually cutting off the very thing that would make that ministry profitable to their, to their members, to their, to their flock. And um, it's, the, it's the Scripture that's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. So everything we do must be grounded in the Scriptures, from the hymns we sing to the, to the communion, to the fellowship, to prayer meeting, to everything that we do needs to be grounded in Scripture so that we keep it profitable. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Titus 3, verses 8 and 9. It is a trustworthy statement and concerning uh, those concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Again, all the crazy things that believers can get mixed up in. And believers can get caught up in arguments and fights and disputes about stupid things instead of edifying one another through the clear communication of the Word of God. Hebrews 4.2 and then our passage today in Hebrews 13.17. Hebrews 4.2, what was the problem with the wilderness generation? Why, why didn't the Word of God profit them? Indeed, we have good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. They they walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. They get to the wilderness and then they rebel. Well, why did the Word of God let them down? The Word of God didn't let them down. The Word of God is always eternally, infinitely alive and powerful. The Word of God is always profitable. But just because it's profitable doesn't mean people profit. Here's the problem. They did not unite it with faith. The word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. In order to profit from the Word of God, not only do you have to hear it, it's got to hit your spiritual ears, but then by faith you have to accept it as the Word of God and respond accordingly. If you don't have a faith reception, then you're throwing away the entire profitability of God's Word. I should say that again. If you don't have a faith reception. See, that's why we start every Bible class with prayer. We want all of us to be in fellowship. We want to be able to have a faith reception. If you're sitting here in carnality, if, uh, if something made you mad and, and you're only, you know, you came to church because your wife made you, she's dragging you and whatever, and, you know, other people come to a church for wrong reasons at different times. And if you're sitting here in the wrong reason, in carnality, apart from faith, whatever that reason may be, then the Word of God will not profit you. It's still profitable. See, it's that able part. <laughs> able. Able to profit. Profit able. And so if you're sitting here apart from faith, that able doesn't happen. It's still profit able, but you're not profiting. And it's really that that's straightforward. So uh, in order to respond to the Word of God, we need to walk by faith. In order to enter into rest, we've got we to gotta do so by faith. This the only kind of rest there is, is the faith rest that we have as we rest from our works, even as God rested from His. Anyway, that's the early part of Hebrews. Uh, I'm not sure how many classes we're going to take on this. We're almost done with chapter 13. Um, we're wrapping up verses uh, 17, 18, and 19 today, and then Really, verse 20 is very deep, 20 and 21. And then it's just kind of, um, you know, um, wrapping up some fine details and saying hi to people and, and uh, some conclusion verses there. I don't want to minimize them because all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Even, the, even the, the little, those from Italy greet you at the end. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with those. But really, we are close. We are close to the end of Hebrews. And at some point, though, I'm going to have to recap three years worth of study in case you've forgotten these early chapters, the stuff about entering into rest, for example. Uh, Before we had the priesthood chapters, we had the rest chapters. And uh, we may take three or four Sundays to to just give a a three-year recap of of the book. And then we'll get into, uh, then we will get into
Genesis. All right, let's look at verses 18 and 19. Pray for us. We have two verses begging for prayer. And uh, if you think that, that uh, the author is just being a tyrant, uh, stomping his foot and demanding in verse 17 that you obey what he says to do, uh, at least recognize that he only had a single verse addressing obedience. He has two verses where he's begging for prayer. Okay? And uh, he says, pray for us for we are sure that we have a good conscience designed to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I, now it gets very personal, it's a we in verse 18, but it's an I in verse 19. I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you all the sooner. That I may be restored to you the sooner. And there is so much in the doctrine of prayer that we can extract from these two verses right here that it's, uh, it'll be good to get through it today, even if I have to keep you till three in the afternoon. I think we'll We'll get through verses 18 and 19 and address these things. But it's, it's, a, it's an appeal for prayer, which is common, uh, particularly Paul and other authors will ask for prayer. But it's a, it's a begging and it's an urgent uh, appeal, uh, all the more, made all the more urgent in verse 19. And uh, I hope we can learn these things. I adapt these things myself sometimes, and I say quirky things, and people don't always get why, you know, Sometimes my quirkiness doesn't communicate. But the, 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 the quirkiness is there for a reason. There's a, there's a madness to my method. Or, or there's a method to my madness. In the, in the um, when he says pray all the more. Okay? And so sometimes I, people will say, oh, pastor, I'm praying for you. And I'll say, well, thank you. Pray harder. Okay? And that's not, that's not to insult you or tell you that you haven't been praying enough or you're but please pray harder because you can always pray harder and you can't tell me that you're, you're praying with the pinnacle of, 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 of effort um, because, you know, clearly you, you came to church instead of staying home praying for me. So you've you got other things going on. You can pray harder. And the author of Hebrews is begging, pray harder and pray more so that the provision can come sooner. See, there's a, there's a human impatience <clears throat> that wants things now. And then there's the recognition that God operates on His timetable. But then there's also the recognition that yes, while God operates on His timetable, He also accelerates that timetable on the basis of prayers. And in fact, He slows down the timetable on the basis of prayer deficiencies. And so what we want to do is pray as hard as we can, as much as we can, as often as we can, and with as many people as we can. Let's multiply these prayers together so that uh, we don't extend, we don't delay things, and we might even accelerate them if God so chooses in uh, the wisdom of His of His plan. In any event, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So it seems like everything is going great. Pray for us, for we are sure. You know, we are sure, but we might be wrong. <laughs> so pray for us. For we are sure that we have a good conscience. And we want to keep that. We want to keep that good conscience. So pray for us. We are sure that we have it, but we don't want to throw it away. We don't want to lose it. And one of the big snares in ministry is when things are going well and you think, ah, I got, I got a handle on this. Things are going well. And you stop praying, you, you let down your guard, you, and next thing you know, things aren't going so well. They were, but now you tripped up. Who caused you to stumble? One of the questions that was asked in Galatians. All right. We have an authorship we requesting prayer at the close of this appended exhortation. Remember, chapter 13 is different from the first 12 chapters. In, in 12 chapters, we have a tremendous, it's a theological discourse. And as a theological discourse, um, you know, if, if chapter 13 was cut off from the end of it, that theological discourse could be sent to any church on the planet. The Jewish ones would, would appreciate it more. But, um, but really, it's, it's designed to be universal until you get to chapter 13, and then it gets very personal. 
And then you have a word of exhortation. In fact, uh, it says here um, in verse 22, uh, I urge you, brethren, bear with me this, uh, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. That's, that's the, the commentary regarding chapter 13. That is the appended exhortation at the end of the theological discourse that is the book of Hebrews. And we have an authorship we. And we've seen it starting in chapter 6. We've seen it in a variety of other places. The author has betrayed um, the fact that he's not alone, that he has a team with him. He's got other believers in his, uh, in his, in his periphery working with him, traveling with him, supporting what he's doing. Uh, there's still a primary singular author. There's plenty of uh, first-person singular usages the I usages that we have, and we have one right here in verse 19. So we have a we in verse 18 that changes to an I in verse 19, and, and, and so they're both involved in this desire for prayer. The overall authorship team plus the primary author himself that I believe is Luke, I used to think was Barnabas, and, and there's other theories, a lot of people think it was Paul, and different things. But the authorship we is requesting prayer at the close of this appended exhortation. This request is a common Pauline practice and um, in the typical Pauline practice uh, there are some differences though than what we see here. When Paul is asking for prayer he specifically or will typically be requesting it for speaking endeavors. He wants boldness in his speech or he wants more open doors or he wants God's grace in his speaking endeavors. So it's very typical either at the end or near the end of a Pauline letter. Romans 15 isn't the last chapter, but it's near the end. There's 16 chapters in Romans. Ephesians 6 is the last chapter. Verses 19 and 20 aren't exactly the end, but close to the end. Colossians 4, final chapter, but early in the chapter, not at the very end. 1 Thessalonians 5, again, final chapter, near the end. 2 Thessalonians 3, it's the first verse of the final chapter. Okay, So it's, it typically tends to be Pauline. Uh, when he gets to that, please pray for me mode, you, you know he's getting ready to wrap it up and he's, he's, he's putting the, the, you know, tying the ribbon and the bow and getting the, getting the scroll ready. Um, and uh, since we don't think this was actually Paul writing the book of Hebrews, but somebody that was associated with Paul he was in the Pauline circle. Uh, the reference to Timothy is the big clue. You know, in verse 23, it takes notice that our brother Timothy has been released. So anybody that knows Timothy real well probably knew Paul real well since they were so close in, in their ministries together. Um, the fact that Paul's not being mentioned here, that Timothy's been in jail. Paul never wrote about Timothy going to jail. How many times did Paul and Silvanus go to jail and Timothy was ignored? Or Paul and Sylvanus got kicked out of Thessalonica and they sent Timothy back in there. So uh, Timothy was kind of the, the young man that, that escaped a lot of this stuff in his early days, but later on even he had to deal with some imprisonment, as verse 23 points to. Anyway, so I hold that the author was an, a Pauline associate, not Paul himself, and so your leading suspects are then Barnabas or, or Apollos, or uh, Sylvanus even, or uh, Luke. And uh, I hold to Luke, as I said when we opened this study, um, for different reasons. All right, but regardless, whoever he was and his team, they are now requesting these prayers. Real quickly, we can run through these. There we go. I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. And so that's a pretty detailed prayer request. He's on his way to Jerusalem, he's taking some, some funds there, he wants his servants to be his service to be acceptable to the saints, but he knows it's dangerous territory. He knows that as soon as he arrives in Jerusalem, he's within the, the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, and, and they're pretty hostile. And uh, they weren't exactly dazzled with his uh, treason 
and he used to be part of them, <coughs> and now he's naming the name of Christ. And uh, anyway, we know the outcome of this. He's asking the Romans to pray. He goes to Jerusalem. He gets arrested, but then the prayers do get answered because they haul him off in chains to bring him to Rome. So he gets to go to Rome after all, just in a different way than he expected, in chains rather than in freedom. Anyway, a lot of things we can glean there. Strive together with me in your prayers. That requires effort, requires coordinated effort, requires like-mindedness on the part of a plurality of people praying together. Not just individual prayers, but church prayer meetings that, uh, that reflect this endeavor. Ephesians 6, the armor of God passage. Not only do you put on your own armor for your own battles, but you also stay in prayer for other believers and their battles, particularly for pastors, for missionaries, for traveling evangelists, for those in the ministry of the Word of God. And so when you have the uh, put on the armor of God, stand firm. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. In other words, like it says in Isaiah, you're in your armor, you're on the wall. You're on guard duty. You're up on the wall. And uh, that's where you can see these things and where you can be on the alert. And then he says, and pray on my behalf. So this is kind of a nice parallel with Hebrews because it's a we prayer followed by a me prayer, right? Starting with us in general and then me specifically, Paul says. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, and that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so he's in jail. And what's his prayer request? Not get me out of jail, but let me speak boldly while I'm here. That maybe the reason for me to be here is so that I can evangelize Caesar. I can evangelize, you know, a judge or a a Roman centurion or, or everybody that I meet that I wouldn't meet otherwise. See, remember when Javier was passing away, he was in the hospital and he was terminal and he was praising God that he had a chance to talk to doctors and nurses that he wouldn't have met otherwise, except for the fact that he was dying of cancer and, and God used that to let him introduce him to all these doctors and nurses. Javier thought that was great. He says, these are all kinds of people I wouldn't have met otherwise and now I can give them the gospel. Different, different uh, situations there. For which I am an ambassador in chains and proclaiming I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. See, the Word of God is not imprisoned. Your circumstances don't limit your, uh, your volition in speaking truth. Colossians 4.3 The concluding chapter to our first hour series. <clears throat> He says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Devote yourselves to prayer. You know what a devotion is? A devotion is something, it's not a, it's not a passing thing, it's not, a, not an occasional thing, it's not a, uh, uh, I've done that once in my life. That's not a devotion. Okay? <laughs> it's, it's, a devotion is something you sacrifice other things for. Because you're devoted to this. So if you're devoted to your marriage, then you sacrifice other things for the sake of your marriage. If you're devoted to your children, you sacrifice other things for the sake of your children. If you're devoted to your ministry, you sacrifice other things for the sake of your ministry. If you're devoted to prayer, that means you sacrifice other things. Maybe you sacrifice sleep, or you sacrifice uh, other you know, fun and games or entertainment or social life or whatever. E.M. Bounds said, I've got so much to do today, I better get started. I need six hours of prayer to get this done right. You know, whereas we come along and say, oh, I've got so much to do today, I better just jump right at it and skip the prayer because I've got too much to do today. That's the wrong attitude. I better spend six hours in prayer. I think that's what he said. It's been a long time since I've read E.M. Bounds on prayer. And his, um, I may not be exact on the quote, but that's the gist of it. All right. Somebody can correct me later when they find the real quote. <clears throat> Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving and praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I also have been in prison. 
And so we realize that whether it's the Colossian ministry, the Ephesian ministry, the Roman ministry, all these are localities, Thessalonica, and their primary prayer is going to be around them. It's going to be their flock, their testing, their circumstances. Beyond them, missionary endeavors, other churches, other ministries. And so we focus on our family here at Austin Bible Church, but we also have prayers for Lost Pines Bible Church, Corpus Christi Bible Church. We have prayers for different ministries in different places. When Pastor Lance Bingley tells me he's retiring and, and there's prayers that are going to be offered up for Omaha, Nebraska. And, uh, or we, we learn that Pastor Ron Breckel is now face-to-face with Jesus Christ. And so we offer up prayers for his widow Betty and children and grandchildren in the ministry there in, in Washington State. <clears throat> Praying for missionaries and for the ministry of the Word of God and going to the various places where they go. Both of those are true stories, by the way, and I need to get an email sent out this afternoon to update everybody on, uh, on those circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5.25, brethren, pray for us. Well, that's short and sweet. <laughs> you know? Not even uh, mention of specifically what the needs might be. No stated prayer items, no designated requests, just a very general, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Have this letter read to all the brethren. So, yeah, straightforward. Just, hey, pray for us. In 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. There's perverts out there, and you've got to be delivered from the perverts. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. All right, so when the authorship we is requesting prayer at the close of the appended exhortation, near the close of chapter 13, and this request, very common Pauline practice, and uh, as we saw in the examples there, in most of those cases, it was typically for the speaking endeavors that Paul would anticipate. But then we, we see the, the added detail here, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience. Well then, if you're so sure, why am I praying? The concern for their honorable conduct and the good conscience which results from such integrity. And so this becomes an issue. We are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And you can be the most honorable minister ever to come along in the history of the church age and what's going to happen? Accusations are going to happen. The, the liar is going to, uh, he's going to lie. The slanderer is going to slander. Our adversary, the devil, goes about accusing and, and excusing and all these other activities that he does. So it is a big concern for honorable conduct and good conscience. And even if you think it's going well, don't stop praying. Pray more. Let him who thinks he stands do what? Take heed lest he falls. And so if you're sure that you have a good conscience, maybe there's something you're overlooking. Maybe you're too subjective and there's something that needs to be highlighted and uh, their prayers are going to spotlight that for you. And and then you can thank them. And so uh, we have it here. We've actually addressed this already back in chapter 10. Do you remember? Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near. This is part of our priestly function in the body of Christ. We get to, uh, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We have a Melchizedek priesthood whereby all day, every day, we can enter within the holy of holies and stand before God the Father. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed, with pure water. The clean conscience that we have in the integrity of our walk before the Lord. We're not standing before the Father because we deserve it. We're not standing before God the Father because we're impressed with ourselves and we pretty much think that God's going to be impressed with us too. No. We stand before our Father as sinners saved by grace. 
entering within the veil because of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us. And we have a good conscience because His blood cleanses us. Because everything we're guilty of has been paid for. And when Satan accuses us, we can just smile. Say, yep, guilty is charged, but the price has been paid. That old account was settled long ago. All right? So having our bodies washed with pure water. This is what we're going to get into. This is why the rulers and the authorities have been disarmed. Because that debt certificate was nailed to the cross. There's nothing left they can allege against us. Whatever they want to say, that got nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross. So they have no armament. They have no weaponry to bear against us in uh, any kind of a guilt twisting in these things. Acts 23.1 Paul made this defense in one of his trials, in two of his trials. Acts 23 and then in Acts 24. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. That's how he functioned as a Pharisee, but he functioned even more so as a Christian. Once he saw the light and once he was ushered into the body of Christ, what he thought was a good conscience was only a good conscience based on legalism. What he has now is a good conscience based on grace. And what a testimony that he has to be able to offer to his former crowd. The council that he used to serve on said that he cast his vote with them. He was a voting member of the Sanhedrin. And now he's on trial, testifying to his good conscience. And so that's worth a smack in the mouth. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him in the mouth. Well, hey, if your conscience is clear, your conscience is clear. And they may not accept it, and you may pay a price. But that's what we're called to do. All right, Acts 24, 16. Doing him, uh, giving his testimony here and talking about this experience. He says, this I admit to you, verse 14, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law that is written in, in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. That's his testimony. That's how he lives and the simplicity of it. And let me tell you, this, this is actually there's an attractiveness to this. There's, a, there's a, a witnessing value to this. That the genuineness of, of your faith, that you, you live what you believe, that in, in, the, in the clear conscience in, in which you serve God, you know, when you're giving the gospel to an unbeliever, they may reject it. They may decide that they don't believe it or they don't think it's real. But they're going to be convinced that you believe it's real and that for you it shapes your your thinking, your being, your life. And that genuineness of your conscience as unto the Lord, that itself becomes a testimony and becomes a component to maybe something that will give them a second thought. Something they'll, I better look at that again. Anyway, it's the benefit here to having the clear conscience. 1 Timothy 1.5 The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You talk about the training up of of the ministry and the things we need to be paying attention to. This is how 1 Timothy starts here. Verse 3 says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Think about the heritage that the church in Ephesus had and the different pastors they had from Paul to Timothy to the Apostle John to others. To finally you get to this rascal that left his first love in 96 AD. Nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. So pastor, you can waste your flock's time and your time and the Lord's time and, and fritter away a lot of things for things that don't count for anything. But the goal of our instruction is agape love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. They've decided they can use ministry as a racket to make money or they can use it as a racket for other purposes. Wanting to be teachers of the law even though they don't understand what they're saying or matters about which they make confident assertions. So you don't have to know what you're talking about just to talk a lot and uh, get people to follow you. So the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's shocking to me when... um, you know, occasionally somebody asks, why, do you really believe that? And it's just like something in the Bible. The Bible says something and we're talking about it. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, one of my unbeliever friends or somebody out there in the world, and, and they know I'm a pastor. What do they think I'm doing? You know, and I pastor a Bible church, hello. So if it says it in the Bible, that's kind of, kind of a big deal. It's, that's what we do around here. But every now and then they'll say, do you really believe that? Is this really what it's about? So well, that's what it says? Of course I believe it. You think I've been wasting the last 25 years of my life? What are we doing? How about uh, same chapter, go down to verse 19. The, um, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, God only wise, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Now this is curious to me. Apparently, on that second missionary journey, after the fight with Barnabas and the split and the departure of John Mark, and it was just Paul and Silvanus, just the two of them, and they, they're passing through Leicester and Derby, there was something, and here we're told it was Prophecies previously made concerning Timothy. Somebody spoke up in a prophetic utterance concerning Timothy. And uh, so Paul and Silvanus said, all right, this kid's 10 years old, but we'll take him. Or however young he was, we'll take him. Young enough so that 15 years after that event he was still despised for his youth. Anyway, with respect to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Isn't that interesting? Of all the things that cause a man to leave the ministry. And um, Ralph said, it's not going to be your teaching, it's going to be your shepherding, or it's going to be your your uh, sin failures and, and whatever. Um, Shipwreck in regard to your faith coming by not keeping faith and a good conscience. And uh, the shipwreck there. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I've handed over to Satan so that we'd be taught not to blaspheme. Blasphemous pastors that lost their ministry suffered shipwreck in their faith. It's kind of curious to me. Not every Paul didn't have success every time he turned around. For every Timothy, for every Titus, for every positive example, you'd have a Demas or uh, Hymenaeus or Alexander, these guys that were in the training ministry. But as blasphemers, they suffered the shipwreck, crashed and burned. 1 Timothy 3.9 Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These are the deacons, by the way. Deacons likewise must be, you know, if I come to you and say, hey, I'm looking for some deacons, I've been thinking about you, and uh, I ask you to pray about it, and I ask your wife to pray about it with you, and we're going through these things. Must be men of dignity, not double-tongued. If you're a hypocrite and you're lying all the time, I don't want you as a deacon, and this church doesn't need you as a deacon. Addicted to much wine, that's going to be a problem. You don't want drunk deacons. Fond of sordid gain, you don't want that. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I want a believer that's living the Word of God, that's learning it and living it. He's not sinless, he's not perfect, he's going to make mistakes, but he's got a clear conscience before God. He's, he's growing like we're all growing. Praise God for that. These men must also first be tested. So you kind of watch and you see. Then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. Appreciate that. We've got a new deacon on the way here, in fact, but it's not official for next Sunday, so I won't say anything. I just did, didn't I? <laughs> First Peter 3.15 Sanctify Christ as Lord of your hearts. 
Lord, in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And that's where people want to end the verse. That's where they stop their quote. And we should. We've got to give the gospel the drop of a hat, okay? And drop the hat yourself if you have to. Just There needs to be an occasion whereby somebody's asking you, hey, what must I do to be saved? Well, give them the answer. Make, a de- make an apology, make a defense, give an answer to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Why are you so confident about the, where America is going? Why are you so confident about the news? Why are you so confident about um, whatever else? And say, well, sorry you have that impression. I have no confidence where America is going, but I know where I'm going. I know where God's plan is going. Different things there. The hope that's in me is a hope of eternal life that may or may not also observe the continuation of freedom in this country. Yet with gentleness and reverence, this is the godliness that we're to maintain, the good conscience that we're to maintain. Verse 16 says, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Sometimes the undeserved suffering, it's not pleasant, who likes it? Nobody likes it. But it can have an additional effect down the road when the people inflicting it. (laughs) You know, isn't that interesting? There's stories about missionaries that were abused and mistreated, and then later on they come back. In fact, the 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 what was the Alka tribe, the Indians that killed Jim Elliot, and then they went back to Elizabeth Elliot. I mean, what what an opportunity. And uh, there's nothing, I mean, you hear these stories and then sometimes you think, really? That's too good to be true. You know, Hollywood couldn't write up a, a storybook ending like that. But, you know, he who persecuted the church of God is now preaching Jesus Christ. That's not new to God. He's been doing this since the Apostle Paul. He's been taking persecutors and turning them into, into preachers. So, uh, yeah, they'll be put to shame. And uh, if nothing else, if not on this earth, after this earth is destroyed and they stand before the great white throne and they see you standing with the Lord as they confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's what they have to look forward to. Down to verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. This is not in the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you undertake the ritual of water baptism and you realize just as a washing would do in cleansing away dirt that the testimony of baptism, that you are identifying with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, that testimony is an appeal to God for a good conscience. And so we see the issues there. All right. Verse 19, it gets personal. The primary author then highlights his personal prayer request. So beyond pray for us and our good conscience and conduct, honorable conduct, he then says, and I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. So whatever else his associates might be doing, in the near future... He, the author, is hoping to travel to be with these recipients, the the Hebrew epistle recipients. So the primary author highlights his personal prayer request, his restoration to the epistle recipient's location. And I think the, the indication is that I may be restored to you means that he used to be there, he had previously been with them, and now he's not. And now we don't know if it's an imprisonment or if it's just other circumstances. Um, it may be that there was a falling out and a disagreement over, uh, kind of hinted at those things, um, the table that, uh, that, that we eat at and, and so forth. Anyway, whatever, whatever the cause is, it's not important. They used to be together, they're not. He would love to be restored to them soon. And if, Tith- if Timothy gets out of jail in time, Timothy can come with him. That's kind of like icing on the cake. Not only will I get to come back and we'll be united together, but then I'll have Timothy with me as well. Kind of a thing. 
I urge you all the more to do this, all the more, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. What's paralleled in these verses is the tandem of more prayer and sooner response. More prayer and sooner response. And we'll get to that here in a moment. First of all, though, don't forget the geographic will of God is the Lord's business. He's the one that opens doors. He's the one that closes doors. If, uh, if the author can't be restored to him, well, then that's Jesus' business and Jesus knows what he's doing. But if he can be restored to him, that's what he would request. That's his making his will known and that's what he would uh, desire. And sooner rather than later is his preference. We see again and again, this is the principle, the geographic will of God. You go where he wants you to go. How quickly can we get through this? Romans 1, 10 through 12. Always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Is that a wishy-washy prayer? How many weasel words are in that verse? I mean, it's just, it seems iffy. Always in my prayers making request, if perhaps... Now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And so it's a desire. He's never been to Rome. The apostle to the Gentiles has never been to Gentile world headquarters, the the capital of the Gentile world. And you think, well, how long is this going to take? He's been praying for it. We already read Romans 15, 32. That I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Philemon 22. When he gets released from jail, he wants to go to Colossae and, and visit. Philemon 22. He says, at the same time also prepare a lodging for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Notice, through your prayers. The prayers are the vehicle. They're the mechanism. Through your prayers. Without the prayers, if you take away the mechanism, you don't get the results. Through your prayers, I will be given to you. Prayer becomes a mechanism for accomplishing the will of God. And especially 1 Corinthians 16, verses 4 through 12. Talking about his travel plans. Whenever I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Maybe I'll even go. And then they'll go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia. He actually doesn't. He turns it around. But anyway. And perhaps I will stay with you. Perhaps. Or even spend the winter. Well, come on, Paul. Make a plan. What are you doing? So that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. Seriously? You don't even know where you're going next? What are you doing? For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. For I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So it's all about the doors that God opens, the doors that God closes, the adversaries you have to face, being where you are, going where He wants you. He says, now if Timothy comes, maybe he will, maybe he won't, but if he does, see that he's with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. And see to it that no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. In other words, if Timothy disappears, I'm going to find out about it. I expect you guys to help him on his way. And concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you. (laughs) In fact, one-fourth of the church was his fan club, and they were desiring that Apollos would return, and they loved Apollos more than Paul. I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. (laughs) So I imagine his fan club must have been insulted by that or hurt. 
But see, it's about the opportunity. When does the door, when does the Lord open the door? What are we called to do? Finally, as a matter of time, um, more prayer equals sooner consequences. More prayer equals sooner consequences. And uh, I'm going to pick up with this next week because I want to make sure we go through this to understand that prayer does move the hand of God and that He invites us to do so. It's not a limitation of His sovereignty. He's not a slave. Uh, God's not a genie compelled to do it, you know, like we're rubbing a, a, a lamp and, and turning God into a genie. But He has designed prayer in this way and welcomed us to participate in this way, calling us His fellow workers for a reason. And I hope that we can learn this and learn the value in multiplying the prayers. So we'll pick up on this next week. Lord willing and rapture painting. Father, I thank you for truth. I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for the book of Hebrews and your faithfulness to open our eyes so we see our application. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.